1: Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker.
2: So, Cody.
1: Big day. So there's a multiple fronts, right? I don't. That's I don't know. I you, like we should do some pre-prep when you're going to throw yeah, things at me. So absolutely, it was a big day, but I don't know what yeah, you're talking about. I wanted about. to convey that. Uh, well,
2: one, number one, we have a
1: guest that is on time. Awareness oh yeah, that's absolutely huge. Not not so much on time. It's not like our guests are a lot of times late. It's the killing animals. The log in, get it? the microphone, Brittany. Brittany. To get everything <laughs> ready, it's and. Uh, okay. Today's guest My is just an absolute superstar at that. I mean, yeah. I mean, the it, it conversation <laughs> doesn't oh. even matter. Well, I
2: know that the conversation you will be amazing with uh, our guest. Uh, you are There's not in America. You're not even in the same day, be, time frame that we're, we're in. You're 10.30 the next morning, right, Shanna? Correct. For so Shanna Finnis, why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself to the millions of adoring fans of Blood Origins that listens to Cody and I Take cheap shots at one another at, on the roundup.
3: I, I do enjoy those cheap shots, though, I have to have to say. So uh, there's not really that much to say. I'm not really that exciting, but uh, obviously my name is Shanna Finnis. Uh, I live in Australia, uh, live in Victoria, Muldura, right on the uh, New South Wales-Victorian border on the Murray River. And I have a, a family that have hunted throughout generations, and I made it my mission to stand out years ago publicly and support them and showcase what it's really about as a mum, a mum's perspective.
2: And you have the distinct honour, and you know this, but you would never say it, in that we had a conversation, me and you had a conversation about 18 months ago, in which you said, Robbie, how do you do this on a broader scale. How do you take blood origins across the world? We weren't even thinking that way. And so because of Shanna we have blood origins Australia. Because of Shanna we have blood origins Spain, Namibia, South Africa, Finland,
1: and soon Cody, uh, 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 Cody, very, blood very origins soon. Canada. Very soon. I need... Uh... Shanna to clone herself and move to Canada. That's not true. I I have some good people in in Canada now that are going to help us manage that. We we got that all figured
3: out. I I think the most valuable thing to outline here is conversations. Starting a conversation, acknowledging somebody's success, admiring them for who they are, and starting that conversation, you have no understanding of where that can lead to. An offering of support, a willingness to listen and learn the things that can be achieved from those conversations. And it doesn't matter where we are in the world right now, you look at technology and it just gives us an opportunity to feel like we're beside each other. Mm -hmm. Mm.
2: Well said. Oh my gosh, well said. Could we just take that as the mantra for the hunting community on a global basis, right, Cody?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, the the human community, even on a bigger scale with our, our focus being on the hunting community. But uh, yeah, I agree a hundred percent. If more people were just willing to have a conversation with like a true legitimate with integrity conversation, uh, we would have a lot less problems across the entire uh, human population.
3: Mm. There's a whole lot of knowledge out there. And through those conversations, we can pass on that knowledge and, and utilise it because, you know, we, if we focus on some of the things that where we go wrong within the hunting community, I think one of the biggest issues is ego. If we leave our egos aside and offer others the opportunity to be listened to, we could uh, be bigger and better in no time.
2: Yeah, that Cody take your ego
1: out of it. Oh yeah. Yeah, cuz yeah. <laughs> I'm the I'm the ego-filled person around. Yeah, absolutely.
2: Well, I would say we are very good about not having any ego on this project, which is the whole point. And if any of us did understandably come forward with an ego, I think it would be checked very very quickly.
1: Yeah. Yeah, true. Ab- ab- absolutely. The the reputation and the the kind of integrity of Blood Origins, that's what it stems from, is taking, taking the ego part out of it and just trying to, uh, to accomplish the mission um, is, is what's, what's led to the successes we have.
3: And would it be true to say that a lot of really good missions, programs could have failed at the hand of egos in the oh, past? I think,
1: be, I think it would be true to say that, yeah, that they have. That yeah. that has happened, absolutely. That's yeah. That it becomes, it becomes more about uh, fame or wealth or recognition for an individual than the accomplishment of the mission.
3: Mm. True.
1: So obviously having
2: Shanna on is part of the big day. Um, We've got a couple of Conservation Club members today, by the way. A uh, conservation club is our way for companies and brands and organizations and industry partners to get behind Blood Origins. Just to say simply, we're putting our money where our mouth is. We believe in what you do. We want you to go find conservation projects all around the world with people like Shanna, with people in Africa, wherever we can find projects. And just do what you do. And today we had two actually come on board. Uh, the first is an outfitter out of Arizona, Big Chino Outfitters, came on out with $100 per month. Incredible. And an Australian company is about to come on board. Uh, Nexus Arrows will come on board with another $100 per month. Australian companies are kicking ass in the conservation club. We have Ozcut at $100, we have Dog and Gun at $100. We have Nexus at $100. We have Cayuga Broadheads at $50. It's, and then obviously we have a ton of Australian companies involved in our supporters program. Um, so yeah, big, massive props to Aussie, Australia, our Australian supporters and Australian Conservation Club members.
3: We are pretty awesome down under. You have to admit. We are kicking goals.
2: You definitely are. You definitely are, and 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 Shanna, you are one of our favorites. Aww. So even though you are behind the scenes, you are the mom me. behind the scenes of Blood Origins Australia. I love uh, behind see... the scenes. <laughs> so um, so we've talked about supporters program, conservation club. Don't forget, if you are a Amazon shopper, I don't know if this pertains to Australia or not. You you know, it may work. Who knows? People can try it. But if you go to smile.amazon.com, maybe smile.amazon.com.au, I don't know. But smile.amazon.com is a way for you to select Blood Origins as a nonprofit. And you can go shopping just like you would typically would. It's going to cost you the same amount of money. But then Amazon gives Blood Origins a portion of a percentage of what you just shopped from their kitty into
1: our bank account. Kind of a no-brainer. I mean, honestly, unless you have someone else that you're giving your smile.amazon money to, we're not talking about you giving us your money. We're talking about you making Amazon give us some of their money. Um, So yeah, smile.amazon.com. It will prompt you to select a nonprofit. We are registered there and you select Blood Origins and we get a small amount. Amazon gives us a little money.
3: They've got enough. And talking talking about Down Under and Conservation Works and, and so forth, I do want to give a bit of a shout-out to a few, a few blokes that I would say are kings of conservation uh, within Fielding Game, Geelong Fielding Game uh, and a henhouse program that obviously they're, they're participating in. Um, you know, last year they took on um, a program at Conawari Wetland with great results. Um, you know, putting out hen houses, the breeding program was amazing. So that now has grown to a statewide program. Um, You know, hen houses are being installed across Victoria and it's being conducted um, by Professor Marcel at Deakin University. And I just, you know, the boys down at Geelong Field and Game, uh, I take my hat off to them. They inspire me every day to be better. So a shout out to, to the boys and uh, the girls that are involved in the hen house program because they do, they do hope to obviously expand this breeding program um, to be a national program in time to come. So that information and that data is going to be so valuable down the track. And I know that, Robbie, you like Geelong fielding game?
2: Yes. I became a Field and Game Australia member, and I had to select my, uh, my chapter, and I did it on behalf of Blood Origins. And um, the chapter I joined was the Geelong Field and Game Australia chapter. Well and uh, for Glenn and the crew and, and the whole, you know, kit and caboodle of FGA, you guys are doing an amazing work. Um, let us help you. Let us do a proof video of Warra, just like we did on the Hard Morass. Send us some videos. We'd be happy to, to do a proof video for you. And then I just wrote this down. Um, do you think that Geelong Field and Game has, all Field and Game Australia and Victoria, do you think they have the number of hen houses that they have put out, number one? Absolutely. And number two, how many ducks have been produced they, as a result of those hen houses?
3: Trent uh, down at Geelong Field and Game, he's the king. He is the king and he has that data. They're ready for anybody that would like to see it. Um, and his, his vision is to create the biggest breeding program in the Southern Hemisphere. Like he is the backbone. Um, there's so many members down there that, you know, put so much time into making this happen, but Trent is at the at the top. So they have the hen houses numbered. So we actually have, I'm um, some Razor fielding game. So you might be able to become a member of Samrasia Fielding Game 2 in time, Robbie. But we have, uh, I think it's 27 hen houses that are coming to some Samrasia. And for me, that's something pretty remarkable because we had some of the best hunting um, areas for duck hunters in Victoria to travel to and to participate um, in during a season. But we've lost all that. It's all been taken from us. Um, so now it's it's time for us to step it up and show, you know, what hunters can truly do. And that's pretty inspiring that we have twenty seven hen houses coming to Samrasia to be monitored.
2: So when you said it was when you said it was lost from you.
3: Yep. So basically so we had uh, areas like Walpole Island, which I think I've spoken to you, Robbie, about in the past, mm-hmm. that the boys would typically hunt through a season. So that's been transformed to a national park now. And we can no longer hunt. Uh, We have one area around the Cardross Lake system, which we can hunt. The boys can hunt through the season, but there's no water that's being directed to, to that lake anymore because I probably don't have enough time to explain it, but we are a farming region. So, you know, I have a vineyard, my husband and I have a vineyard. We would typically have once years ago, flat irrigated. That drainage runoff would then go to these lakes, where now we've minimized our water usage. It's all drip irrigation, and we're seeing that these lakes don't see the water that they once did. So we have next to nothing left in this area to hunt during a, a duck hunting season. So, you know, I am in discussions at the moment uh, in regards to, you know, cardross lakes, which are, are pretty um, pretty exciting, but I won't get too far ahead of myself and too excited just yet
2: sure sure i have to
3: learn patience
2: as we all do Mm.
3: yes but to see this uh hen house program going ahead and to be a part of it is something remarkable and it's given me a little bit of a boost
2: very cool awesome cody anything else you want to say as we get rolling no i think we covered it i'm excited let's get into the topics I see you're drinking water. Shannon's drinking tea. I'm drinking whiskey. Should be a, or coffee, Shan. No, is no. Is that your no. second coffee of
1: the day? Hot water.
2: Hot Why? water? Yeah. Why?
3: I've had really water. I've had my coffee intake for this morning. It just calms me.
2: Just hot water. No salt, no lemon, no nothing.
3: Just hot water. It's good for your body, too, they say. Anyway. It
1: is they. <laughs> yeah, they. <laughs>
3: Everyone on the can, internet. Everyone can have an opinion these days.
2: That is true. Very true. Very true. Well, let's get into it. And uh, as our guest, Shanna, we sent you a couple of articles that have popped onto the radar this this week.
1: Uh, we typically let the guest pick. One was
3: fairly hard to read well they were all hard to read but one in particular was quite frustrating and it was the one uh headline just let the wild horses be
2: Mm. what a topic to start with wild Mm. horses Mm. it's It's not a controversial topic at all
3: no not at all not at all but
2: Cody do you think that wild horses let me ask this then I'll back it up a little bit what do you think is the most controversial wildlife management topic on the globe
1: oh on the on the well i don't know i mean that would have to be i would only have knowledge of what's the most controversial as far as the discussion happening in the united states i mean i'm sure i still think even in the united states there's some some uh megafauna in africa that is going to be the most controversial. I mean, I think, I still think, I, I think possibly, you know, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the ho- the horse one, the horse one is definitely the most controversial thing happening in the United States. Um, more controversial than wolves? I think so, yeah. I mean, I think if you just straight polled people, I think there's more people that understand we've got to manage, that are, that are willing in some extent to manage wolves than there are willing to manage by any means necessary wild horses.
2: Yeah, I would agree. I think wild horses, it's, it's something that everyone recognizes is having such a detrimental impact on the ecosystem. Like the numbers are out of control. The, Estimates of wild horses in the United States is about seventy two thousand. I think the the capacity that they had was, again, it's like elephants, like it was it's a tenth, right? It's like eight thousand horses or ten thousand horses, and it's now seventy five thousand horses, or whatever the estimate is. And there's visible issues, visible ecosystem damaging, but it's a horse.
3: And there's emotions, and there's a connection. And they've been utilised. They've helped us modernise to become who we are today. And, you know, a lot of the argument is that without the horses, and this is the same issue here in Australia, we have the same issue. We could pretty much overlay these issues. That without the horses, we wouldn't be what we are today. So there, there is an element of respect that we have, but there's not much common sense happening which is worldwide. You can
1: pile on top of that that we created the problem too sure. right like we, we we brought them here um and so yeah it's a it's a very controversial issue i don't i don't uh it's probably the one that uh that i personally would I really like horses like i've had horses i love to ride i'm a big fan of horses um, and you know it's it's probably the one that i would put the most of my time and treasure into to try and figure out a non-lethal solution to but i mean what do you do when you're 65,000 horses over capacity for the for the ecosystem i i don't i don't know what you do but it's uh it's the, the article was kind of silly right i mean the article was playing off of a it'll fix itself problem it'll fix it it'll fix the problem itself kind of scenario and that's just there was no I mean, solution
3: it, there was no solution right. offering a of solution within the article and I I printed off the article and I grabbed my highlighter and I started to highlight and then in the end when I finished with this article I was like I've highlighted it all, like I need to just focus on the little things that I haven't highlighted because there's so many, there's so many conflicting words within this article. And the only thing that it is achieving is uh, a drive in emotions, picking issues uh, with no solution. And uh, the one thing that I actually liked in this article was. My invasive species is tastier than your invasive species. I thought that was gold. Yeah. I love it. I actually love it and I want to steal it because I think that is the most valuable few words in this article and something that we could all utilise. Yeah. But I'm going to get my haters from saying that.
1: No,
2: it's, it's, you know, when I asked Cody the question, feral horses' massive wildlife problem were embroiled in emotions, and they even said it in the article. It's like, you know, comparing feral horses to feral cats is pathetic on its face. <laughs> I
3: hardly that
2: too. Maybe, but honestly not because, you know, we don't have as big of a feral cat problem here in America as Australia has a feral yes. cat problem. Huge, And you talk about biodiversity impacts of those feral cats. And again, embroiled in emotion because they're so entwined into human culture today that there's just no way around it. There is like the horse situation, a cat situation. There's no way around the end result there. And the end result is you're going to have to lower the population somehow, whether by lethal means or Mm non-lethal means. And so you have... In the federal cat world, you have these people that are, you know, catch, neuter, catch neuter, and replace. So they're putting the animals back. They're just not going to breed any longer, okay? So that's their non-lethal management technique. And the horses, Cody, they used to do roundups, right? They used right. to round up thousands of horses and put them on the sale block. Not even on the sale block. They would give them away. Hmm. But nobody wants them anymore.
1: There's, there was just too many. There, there used to be an incredibly cool program um, in my hometown of Hutchinson, Kansas, where they would come by the truckload to the state prison, um, and they had built a really nice facility. Um, it, it was a win-win-win because the horses got to live. The inmates were legitimately impacted by being taught how to train a horse and then training a horse. Like you would go to the auction and see hardened criminals just bawling their eyes out because their horse was getting adopted. But at the same time, and then people could also get, you know, good sturdy horses for an affordable price at the auction. Um, and that, it, at least in that region, it was just so, it, it like flooded the market, right? Like there was just so many horses that it wasn't a viable, complete solution for the problem. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, they're a very hardy, sturdy animal and they're gonna breed and they're gonna grow and they're doing a lot of destruction and and something has to be done. And at some point they're gonna pull the plug on a on a lethal solution that gets broadcast all over the place and it's gonna be a real uh it's gonna be a shit show.
3: Well ronda Ronda outlines in this article that problem actually started with um the bureau of land management when they took over the wild horse management well that's not true it started when man introduced horse to the wild um and then she went on to say that uh basically you know in the good seasons when there's rainfall and there's plentiful feed that there's no issue that these horses breed and that the horses will take care of themselves and that they won't breed um, when when the conditions aren't right. And you know, um, BLM, they when obviously the good seasons were happening, there was rainfall and there was feed; it was all good. But then when the drought emerged, that they, they drilled uh, obviously water holes for these horses. So we're introducing something that's not natural for them to sustain their populations. Then obviously going forward down the track a little bit, they decided that they needed to deal with these numbers. So they took that water away. But she has outlined that you take that water away, these horses that were living wonderful, beautiful lives turned on themselves too. So, you know, you look at the animal themselves and how nature takes its course and they try and you know, that competition for the strong to survive and the weak, they, you know, they were fighting. They were trying to kill each other when they were coming to the waterholes. It's just she's outlining all these issues. Uh, in fact, you know, yeah, it, it, it confused me. The whole article was, was painful, to be honest.
2: Well, I don't know if you clicked on uh, the, the original article that she was actually yes. um retorting the david colburn article which is the my invasive species is tastier than your invasive species and it starts out nevada has a feral pet problem
3: Mm.
2: (laughs) and continues to go through it It, again it's just a a, if you want to read it those that are listening to this david colburn the nevada independent my invasive species is tastier than your invasive species it's an opinion article written back in april and then rhonda the Rhonda Ferris wrote an article. Just let the wild horses be, as a retort opinion article again with the Nevada Independent. Any last thoughts, concerns, comments? Wild horses. Should we do a talking head on wild horses, Cody?
1: Ah, uh, probably be good for the views. No, I don't believe we should. I don't. I don't. Uh, I think right now the right thing is being done by the government in attempting to find a way to control the population, Um, I think a talking head would be maybe merited if someone in charge decided to just let them continue to expand and populate. Agreed.
2: All right, let's go on to something uh, a little bit more local to Shanna, which is an article that came out of Australia on Monday last week and it was published in the ABC News there, and the title of the article is Deer Control Underway in New South Wales, Mid-North Coast, Carcasses Used as Feed for Local Zoo.
3: Wonderful.
2: Wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. So, so Shanna, talk to the audience a little bit, because you have obviously better background than we do, about deer in Australia. I know there's obviously a lot of, you know, arguments back and forth between calling them pest species and invasive species, which they are, and game species as, as a resource?
3: Well, if you, you have a game species, they have a value. They have a value and you have your hunters that are, are wanting to participate and help in controlling the numbers. So, you know, that's a free resource for the government. So I think it's crucial to ensure that they remain on the game list, to ensure that they have a value. Obviously, there's some areas where numbers have exploded um, and there are culls that are conducted. I do feel that this particular article and this program is a positive one because they're not being left, they're not being culled and they're not being left to, to go to waste. So we're showcasing what we can do with these animals, that we do have to manage them. Uh, and, and obviously the positive aspect that they're going to to feed animals in the zoo. I, I can't see anything negative about this whatsoever. But, you know, keeping them on the game list is, is crucial.
2: Yeah, and for everyone's edification, you have a lot of deer in Australia. They are, as Shanna said, their abundance is increasing tremendously all the time. Um, And you have areas and pockets in which they're very detrimental to agriculture. And, and because they are non-native to Australia, they are classified as a pest species as introduced and essentially can be hunted. There may be some seasons for certain, um, for certain deer in certain areas. Right, Shanna?
3: Correct. Um,
2: but this one is, as Shanna says, it's an amazing program. It's, they obviously have an issue with deer. They want to trap them. They seem to be baiting them up, trapping them in there 30, 40 at a time. And as you said, COVID lost 18 months, probably no visitors in the zoo. They're like, what are we going to do for meat for the predators? Yeah.
3: But even wow. but even it, to the point where COVID has it's, it's been detrimental to so many people, even hunters. Hunters haven't been able to go out and harvest. Uh we've been we've been restricted to staying at home. So this just outlines to how crucial it is to maintain access to land for hunters to hunt because hunters are the truest form of conservationists. We say that day in day out, but it is true. You know, we go in there. We don't ask for money. We do it because that is who we are. Our governments need to make sure they utilise us as hunters more. Uh, we can't do it everywhere. We understand that, but you know working together is vital going forward. I'll, I'll tell you one, one story that, or one one thing that happened with my husband and I, we were we were out walking, uh, obviously it's just enjoying a day out of the bush and we came across five fellow deer. Unfortunately, this area, it was uh, a flora reserve, which then has been transformed into a flora and fauna reserve. We can no longer hunt there. So I spoke to one of the officers and I said, what's the chance that we could come in as law-abiding hunters and harvest these deer? You know, we could share this food with friends and family. It could fill so many freezers. The answer was straight out no, you can't. So those deer that we came across, they were going to be cold. There's no question. But they were not going to be utilised and that makes my blood boil.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. That's what actually came to my mind when I read this article was is it in an area that hunters have access to? I I re- regardless of whether the meat goes to big cats in a zoo or to humans, the whenever the government has to cull an a game animal, I start to have questions on is is hunting available there? Could hunters have you know, contributed financially with the purchase of a tag to, be, to have been a part of that. And some of that, that is the hunter in me. It's also the uh, kind of quasi-political conservative in me of if we have people willing to go take care of this for free or even pay to do it, um, why are we, because, you know, if the government did it, whoever did it got paid right? I mean, it was, it was, someone was paid to do that. Um, and that, that's the, it's not a great big deal, but that's what came to my mind with this is anytime the government is having to call a game species, I want to know the backstory of why hunters weren't allowed to harvest that species. Cause obviously somebody decided there's too many of them. Um, or did hunters just not, I think, you know, there's even some, some uh, there's some places in the United States where there's not enough hunters and and sometimes deer get out of control in their coals, um, but that's that's what popped into my mind was was there a group of hunters who were willing to harvest those animals and they didn't have to have have government dollars spent for the coal?
3: Mm. And you look at the Australian uh, Deer Association; they are they're amazing. They do some amazing work. There's there's some big brains in that organization. And, you know, I, I just think we could be, our governments could be utilizing those brains so much more uh, in a positive way. So, and that's a shout out to the ADA. They they do some yeah amazing things.
2: Yeah, big shout out to ADA in Australia. I, I, what I loved about this article was the back end of it. Mm in that we don't, we don't learn a lot about Mr. Chamberlain, who is the caretaker at the Billabong Zoo Koala and Wildlife Park, but he is clearly against hunting and against killing animals, right? He is this wildlife lover. But he says, um, the Billabong Zoo owner Mark Stone, sorry, not Mr. Chamberlain, Mark Stone said, it was disappointing to see feral deer culled. So he was obviously against it, um, but would rather use their carcasses than let them go to waste. At the end of the day, to see mistakes that man has made that has created this problem is obviously very sad, he said, but it's better than the meat going down a hole. And the meat was given to the big cats in the park
1: and saves a few dollars in the process. And He's also, it. it listen, here's the thing that I thought about Mr. Stone, was that he took the time to say... It helps on the dollars and cents side of things, but it also creates more work on our side preparing it. They literally gave him free meat and he had to throw in that it was more work. That's my complete impression of Mr. Stone right there. Yep. Good point. Good point indeed. Okay.
2: Uh, Cody decided that he was going to throw in a a bass article this week um, to just change things up a little bit uh
1: to throw shanna for a loop obviously
3: it was interesting
1: first of all did either of you know how big sea bass can get
3: like two meters. yeah
2: isn't it like a isn't it like the goliath grouper isn't it about the same thing i know very little about fisheries what's your what's your degree in again biology i'm not a marine ecologist i'm not a marine ecologist not a marine biologist give me
1: a break yes i know
2: a lot about a lot of shit i don't know a lot about sea bass
1: anyway i i brought this up the crazy thing is is i read this article through my google news feed which then like so now google assumes that i want to be inundated with sea bass articles and i've read like three or four more it's really it's really kind of a Um, A couple of them have even gotten into like conspiracy theory type stuff about why this study of sea bass in the United States that deemed they needed to be listed as endangered, literally like someone drew a line out into the ocean and stopped it at the U.S.-Mexico border. And for some reason, when you cross that, it's the exact opposite. It's like the sea bass are all hiding from the Americans down in Mexico. <laughs> um and I don't it was just uh it was encouraging to me. I think there's a lot of I'm not going to say a lot. I think there's some biologists in wildlife conservation type roles who would have just not reported on this because there's some good news about the populations of sea bass and I I I don't see enough of that. I don't see enough of, hey, hold on a second. There's actually a whole bunch of sea bass left. Um, and in fact, you can go into any fish market in Mexico and they're all over the place, which obviously means if they're there every day, then they're still fairly plentiful out in the ocean. Um I don't know. That's what struck me was this bio, this wildlife conservation focused scientist um, kind of pointing out a good thing, kind of pointing out that maybe the data that's got people all wound up about sea bass is a little skewed because it only covers one section of water.
3: And the smaller section of water, too, which was concerning because reading that article was stating that 73% of the species range is Mexico's water but they weren't using that in the data that they're basing their opinions on.
1: Yeah, and maybe it's kind of like it's kind of like classifying kangaroos as endangered when you did a population study here in Colorado, right? True. And we don't we don't need to list them, right? I mean, they're still they're doing okay in the world. Um, but there's not very many here. You know, I've yet to see one. But that's the and to me it was really cool to see someone in this field pointing that out that's that's why i grabbed the article it wasn't some i also now kind of want to dive and see it i want to see an 8 foot sea bass that's a big damn bass um but that's why i brought the article up because i think he was pointing out a skewing of some data or at least a limited grasp of some data in putting something on on the, uh, the, the actual endangered species list, right? Am I saying that correctly?
2: Yeah, so I'm going to play devil's advocate for a second, and I don't know if it was a true U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service ESA listing or rather a... Um, or uh, I, you know, maybe it was tied to IUCN, but let's, you know, I'm going to look at the benefit of the doubt on the other side of the coin for a second. Let's just talk. think that maybe this was tied to California and fisheries regulations in California. And so any type of science that would be undertaken for the state of California in terms of setting its fisheries regulations for those waters would could not consider waters that they could not fish in.
1: No, it, it was the International Union for Conservation of Nature, also known as the IUCN, that listed them as critically endangered. Correct. Not the state of California. I will never put an article on here about the stupidity of the state of California because I don't think it's worth discussing. Okay? <laughs> IUCN has them listed as critically endangered. The, the data from IUCN did not have any population data from Mexico. Gotcha. Which, which consists of 73% of the species'
3: entire range in the world is Mexican waters. You have to start asking questions, though. They're, they're, surely there should be questions asked in regards to this. Uh, and, and one thing I would like to sort of know more about, and I will look into it, is it's a member-based organisation. There's like 1,400 members member organizations that are involved in that and who they are and what they're all about would be interesting to know as well
2: that's mm-hmm. mm-hmm. yes, good point okay very good point and it was done in a very good we love the conservation that's come up a couple of times um i really like that uh that journal outlet they seem to do some very very good pragmatic objective journalism shout out to the conversation it's almost like they're reporting the truth oh imagine that yeah i love i love the bottom line academic rigor journalistic flair
1: yeah no seriously and they you know but yeah i i it makes it makes me question everything i not everything it makes me think we should be questioning iucn more yes on you know again if if not to reiterate my ridiculous kangaroo mo- m- analogy, but that's what it is. Hmm. That They went to a place, they, they went to all the places in the world that aren't the main place that sea bass live, didn't find very many sea bass, and then listed them as critically endangered.
3: And then you would have to ask, has this happened in other yeah, areas? How, how true and correct is the data that they're they're using? To make, and there's big decisions that are being forged on this data. So,
1: oh, yeah, governmental policies on, on harvest and import and consumption are based on IUCN data mm. all over the world. Hopefully, it's just one weird example. I mean, if 73% of the sea bass are in Mexico and you were going to study me- sea bass. It's a great place to go. I mean, I, I would have gladly gone to Mexico to help them count sea bass. And, and uh, I don't know. That's why I put it up there was because the conversation in this uh, gentleman in the article who I've got to pull up his name now. But
3: One positive aspect to that article is that, you know, the the fishermen are still harvesting these fish. They're still... That uh, they're still having an opportunity to make an income for their families, and these the numbers and the population is still, uh, it, you know healthy. So we need to be tapping into that and looking into that and going. These, these people are still harvesting them, but their numbers are still in in wonderful, healthy numbers. So that's a win. That's a positive. We don't hear those those stories very often, do we?
1: No, we don't. All right. Oh, hold on! What? Hold on! One last thing that I wanted to point out was that the gentleman that wrote this article is actually leading. He is in charge of the next worldwide sea bass population analysis for IUCN. So, I I I, I question the past of what they decided. I feel like kudos to them for picking a guy that this is now my go-to sea bass scientist right here. I like this guy. I think he's telling us the truth and he's in charge of the next IUCN. It gives me confidence that not everyone there is looking to grow the list of endangered species. That's the, the, their goal should be to relay facts and data, not just grow their list and make the world seem more apocalyptic. Mm -hmm. Well said. Well said.
2: All right. We have one more article uh, from probably a, a less reputable journalistic source than The Conversation, <laughs> uh, The New York Post. I don't even think it's there. It's just New York Post. Um, and there's, there's, it's a very interesting one. It, it's, um, it has all sorts of like controversy, drama, conspiracy all built in around it. And it's an article about, a, uh, the, the, the headline of the article is, Financier says Game Hunter swindled them out of $2 million on big kills, colon suit. Um, I don't think we're going to talk, you know, about the actual outfitter's name. People can look it up themselves. But I think what's funny about this is this. There's obviously two sides to the coin here, but the suit itself Almost feels like back in the day when McDonald's started coming out in America and people were getting sued for hot coffee dropping on their lap, right? And they were suing McDonald's. You never told me that this coffee was that hot. It's almost, a, to me, it feels a little childish that I paid for you to make me really big and famous and kill a bunch of big shit. And you actually didn't. We didn't actually kill big shit. And now I'm going to sue you because my ego is a little, you know, destroyed a little bit uh, because of that. Now, is there something on the
1: other side? Cody, what do you think? Yeah, well, if, I mean, if you pay someone, if, you know, in the most simplistic of terms, if you paid someone to do this agreed upon thing, They said they did it, and you paid them. If that's what happened, very much so. We're analyzing an article from the New York Post. So, if you hit next on the page in the New York Post, it might be aliens, right? Okay. We don't know if any of this happened, but this article, this article again, is all over my feeds in multiple places. Um, So, yeah, I think, I think that uh, if you pay someone for a service. They said they delivered it. You paid them, and it turns out they didn't deliver it. That's a real thing. That's something to be upset about. Um, I don't think any of this is, is – there there's nothing good about this, right? I, I also think someone who obviously went and had a very successful multiple times in Africa hunting um, then wanting all of their money back over inches, um, it's, it's not good for us. It's, it, it's, it's, it's not good for the image of hunters. Um, I, again, I understand that the gentleman's upset if he was lied to. Um, I'm just not a big fan of someone who... This story is going to feed the stereotype of Americans hunting in Africa. Mm but he just went over there to spend a bunch of money for horns. Right. And yep. I don't think at blood origins. We've ever denied that that exists at all. Um, unfortunately, this story is going to feed the stereotype and pe- more people are going to think that that's why everyone hunts is, is horns to hang on walls um, or to make some list- the rich white guy, right? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, you know, I I wish that the, not the New York Post, I wish the conversation, the website that had the sea bass would do a story about guys like me that have a a mason jar in his bedside saving money just because I want to go to Africa and I want to be a part of that. Um, And they can come and take a picture of my kudu on the wall here that... Everyone that's ever seen it asked me why I shot a kudu that was that little, because um, it's a little bitty kudu. It was a cold kudu, um, and it, it was what I could afford when I went to Africa. <laughs> right after I got done with everything else, I'm like, "Yeah, what else you got?" And I really want a kudu, and he's like, "Well, will you shoot a cold one?" I'm like, "Absolutely." I, the horns mean nothing to me. They look cool on the wall, you know. Like, if I told people it was an Inyala, maybe I would look like I had a big one, right? But it's not. It's not a big goodie. I can tell you that. But it doesn't matter to me. And, and I wish that the stories of those of us that just want to go to Africa and be a part of that culture and the hunting culture and the, and the just whatever sickness I have to go back to Africa. Um, and it has nothing to do with horn sight. um
3: and there's many that have lost sight in the true value and the value lies with the memories and the experience of our hunts not the size we have to sort of refocus and, and shake a few up to to jog their memories as to where that value lies and you know when no when, when a mount is mounted to a wall it's a it's an offering of respect for that that game that you've harvested and offering it an opportunity to be acknowledged for its true beauty for generations to come. I think, you know, it's not the size that we should be focusing on and this just showcases egos. Once again, I think that was my reply to you, Robbie, the other night.
2: That's right. That's right. You were like, oh, this is all about egos right here. Hmm.
1: On both sides of the equation. I think there's, I think there's, so I want to, not even devil's advocate. I just want to extend the conversation because I'm going to Idaho on a mule deer hunt. And I hope that I find a great big mule deer, right? I mean, I'm not denying that. I'm not, I'm not saying it doesn't matter to me at all in any way. If there's two deer standing there And I've decided I'm going to shoot one of them. I'm shooting the one with the bigger horns, right? And and I actually think, I can admit that some of that is like, I wish there was a more fun, gameful, almost innocent word for ego, right? I'm going up there with my two best friends in the world and there's a little bitty, I want to shoot a bigger deer than they are. I do. But that's not, it's not what's driving me. It's not what's driving me to go do that. It's not my focus. The last time I went on a mule deer hunt with those guys, I shot a mule deer whose horns are in a drawer next to our couch because that's how small he was. And I literally had to get on my phone when we spotted him. To, I had to check the the Utah regulations for how big the horns had to be, but I wanted to put meat in my freezer. That, that was the, the driving factor on that trip. Um, not really. The driving factor was spending time with my friends um, and, and doing this thing that we love to do, but I also wanted to put meat. But I think there is a conundrum there that I'm perfectly willing to admit that when I go to Idaho in October, my trip will be just a little tiny bit better if I shoot a great big mule deer. It will. No, for sure. I don't know, and I, I suppose that is ego, right? Like, I, I I suppose it makes it a little bit better for me. Um, it just it's about six percent of my motivation, right? It's it's very little. Your
3: hunt's not going to be ruined if you don't get the biggest. You're still going to.
1: No, my hunt's going to be ruined if my. Heart explodes in the mountains of Idaho because I'm fat and out of shape. That's the only thing really that could ruin my hunt. And hopefully, I just die and don't have to deal with the aftermath of that. But no, nothing's going to ruin my hunt. I'm going to have a blast. And I've been on multiple hunts with these two guys, um, including a, a, a bear hunt with Robbie and Maine, where, in fact, again, I have a great wall of defense here. But the size of the animal is not my prime motivation. My, <laughs> prime motivation. my prime motivation for the bear that I shot in Maine at that instant was he's big enough and I got to get out of this rain. It's raining so hard that I the skin is falling off my fingers and I got to get out of this rain. So I'm not waiting for a bigger one. And he's on the wall downstairs and my... At the time, seven-year-old stepson asked me why I shot a baby when the mount showed up. It's not a baby. Okay, it's not. I didn't shoot a cub. But it's not a very big bear either. I can admit that. I'm totally happy with it. And and anyone that gives me grief about it does does not hurt my feelings or ruin that hunt in any way. That was a great hunt. Great time in the lodge. Met great people. Um, and it was one of my most memorable times in the world. But I think, I think if you were
2: obviously a good friend of both of ours, Cody, Michael Sabbath, if you had to pose this question to him about ego of this animal on the mountain, I think he would deconstruct your, your idea this way. Ego is going to be tied to you shooting that animal because this is something that you want to portray to the world of how great a hunter you are. Okay? In terms of the relationships to your friends, it's not ego then, but rather almost self-motivated competition that's driven between friends. There is no ego; there it's a competition, all right. But at, if you if you if you bury down even one layer deeper, you've got to ask yourself: Well, why is it that you would choose the bigger buck over the buck next to it that's smaller? And it's because of the idea that the there is a cultural value tied to that individual that has older antlers, and it's derived because that animal is older, that animal is more mature, and that's why it has bigger antlers. But when you see those antlers, you're not, making the, you're not going through that construct in your brain that is, oh, it's an older animal, it's more mature, and that's why
1: I'm going to shoot it. It just so happens to have bigger antlers. That's why you take it. No, I I don't disagree at all. I think all of that stuff is an underlying motivation. I think it's also important, at least for me to admit, that I just want to shoot I want to be the one I want to shoot a bigger deer than the two guys that are going with me. That's I mean, you know, but like you said, not in an egotistical way, as much in just in a spirit of competition way. And honestly, a competition that has it has very little to do with skill. It has a lot more to do with patience, right? Like the vast right. majority of people that have ever shot giant scoring animals, most of them would admit that it was 85% of them that just happened to be the animal that walked out that day, right? Like, I mean, there's no end, but it's still, I don't know. I just, I, I, I think it's important that we deal with the fact but we do want to, there's a part of, not when I, I'm, I, me, I don't want to speak for anyone else. We wanna sh- I want to shoot a big deer in November, but it's not what's driving me. Um, and if we're not, but if we were going with an outfitter, I wouldn't sue him if I shot one that was smaller than what he said I could get. Yeah. yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, Shanna, any last words?
3: I think you boys have just covered it perfectly. I'm just sitting here in awe, listening.
2: In awe. Do you hear that, Cody? In awe of you, my man. No,
1: no, not at all. I'm loving your glasses too, Cody. What's that?
3: The glasses, the whole glass thing, the glasses.
1: I wouldn't know which one was you or Robbie on the screen if I didn't have them on. So
3: there was one. Was there one podcast when we were talking about bifocals?
1: Oh, yeah, this is, this is Cody
3: wow,
2: looking down wow. his nose at us. I, yep. I, I, truly, exactly.
3: I truly enjoyed that podcast. You guys mm-hmm.
2: should. I enjoyed it, too. You guys oh, should respect God, you your did, elders did. more <laughs> and not make oh. fun. Well, I, I did start this podcast by saying this is a big day. And I did leave out one thing very purposely. And that this is our 100th podcast. And we couldn't have thought of a better guest to have on our 100th podcast than you, Shanna Finnis. Uh, as soon as Cody said, who do you think you want for your 100th podcast? I said, I want Shannon," Because of oh, the influence that you stop, had on us stop. 18
1: months ago. Stop. I will screenshot the WhatsApp messages. What did I say? What did I, I say? I literally said one about Didn't I say Shannon? It was my idea. You oh, could, that's right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I apologize. I apologize. 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 I, I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> he tried to steal the credit for that. That's just how it's it, <laughs> what's working with him is like. You have to deal with
2: it. I'm truly humbled.
1: I apologize.
2: Cody, you are correct. You were the one who suggested Shanna and I thought it was an outstanding idea. Thank so you. Thank you, Cody.
3: And congratulations, guys. It's, it's pretty amazing what you are achieving uh, and the milestones that you've, Cody's
2: gone, gone. Cody, Cody just decided that he was fed up and he hung up He hung up on us.
3: Shame. I do want to finish it with uh, just saying that, you know, I am humbled, Robbie, um, and I just want, you know, anyone that's listening to understand that it doesn't matter who you are, where you are in the world, um, you can make a difference. And don't give up because there's been many times that we feel like we, you know, take two steps forward and 10 back. And there's been times there will be that I think I've probably shed a few tears with you, um, feeling like I've failed. But, you know, there's hope because tomorrow something pretty amazing could happen and and you could feel like you're kicking goals all over again. So as long as everyone sticks together, has some understanding um, and is kind, I think just be kind and considerate. We have enough haters. We don't need any haters within. So keep, keep doing the great work that you're doing. Thank you. Thank
1: you, Shannon. Thanks. Cody, welcome back. Anything, any final words? No, I don't know where I dropped out. I just need to make sure. It was my idea. I, I lost connection right there. I was on a diatribe. It was my idea. And in fact, I, I've pulled up the WhatsApp conversation. I have proof.
2: We have admitted, I have admitted that it was your idea.
1: You
3: and-
2: I was
3: just going along with it that it was great. I do. I do. He knows I do. And I'm a bit like a mother. I think once you're a mother, you're always a mother. Uh, And Robbie, you can vouch for this, that I'm always sort of saying or reminding, make sure you don't push yourself too hard. Make sure you're taking a break. Make sure, you know, you're switching off, turning off. Because I think social media is, there's so much on there that it can be so draining at times. And I think we all need to remember to turn off sometimes. And just go enjoy our families, even if it's one day a week.
1: Well said. Well said.
3: Good. Thanks. Am I free to go now?
2: (laughs) Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.